American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To learn how to claim CME credit or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org backslash university. All right, wonderful. We're the, we've, we've made it through the first hurdle of the first uh, in-person uh, meeting. So thank you again for all attending. Uh, this course, just to make sure we're all in the right room, is should I order a PET scan integrating molecular imaging into urologic oncology clinical practice, current opportunities and or current approaches and future opportunities, and just make sure this gets us to where we want to be. Uh, five course objectives today. Uh, I won't read them out to you, but you can see what they are. And then the, the pre- and post-test questions will be uh, linked to these uh, five uh, objectives, which hopefully we'll cover in detail. And then just briefly to get started, you know, the whole idea of molecular imaging can be brought into a diagnostic algorithm, really for local staging, distance staging, and even bone staging in the, in the uh, diseases that we'll talk about today, including kidney, bladder, prostate, and testis. And, you know, most conventional imaging is part of standard of care uh, guidelines, but essentially that bottom row there of molecular imaging can probably be moved up or incorporated into your algorithm in some form, and then our experts today will kind of go over the details of where that may fit into your clinical practice. So just briefly introduction, uh, Dr. Michael Gorn will start. Uh, he's an expert on uh, molecular imaging for kidney, you can see here. Uh, I will touch base a little bit on molecular imaging in the use of bladder cancer. Uh, Dr. Rose from UNC is a new addition to this course this year. She's an expert on clinical trials and will be discussing molecular imaging in the setting of testis cancer. And then again, Tom Hope uh, from UCSF will be just touching base on molecular imaging, PSMA, uh, for prostate cancer uh, staging. So with that, uh, we're a couple minutes behind and we'll get started. And I think Dr. Gorn, I'll just scoot up. Okay, good morning, everyone. Um, uh, oh boy. Uh, thank you very much, Mark, uh, for the invitation to present at uh, this year's course. I guess this is like the third or fourth year we've been doing this now. Um, it's amazing how much the, the content and the slides change every year. Uh, when we first started, PSMA imaging wasn't even approved yet, right? And now it's like in every guideline, so it's pretty remarkable. So this morning I'm going to be talking about um, risk stratification of localized renal tumors using molecular imaging. Um, th this is a topic where is sort of more conceptual than it is actually used in clinical practice. Um, probably the, the main imaging agent is in clinical trials right now, has not yet been approved, but I think probably by the meeting uh, this time next year, uh, we'll be, just like PSMA, we'll be talking about an agent that's, uh, that's clinically used. So this is really just a, a primer into some of the, the concepts that I think we're going to see in the future to come. Um, and also, this talk is focused on localized renal tumor imaging. There's a whole other talk that could be given on molecular imaging of, of metastatic kidney cancer, but this is really just going to focus on localized renal tumors. So these are my disclosures. Uh, probably most relevant um, uh, to today's talk is that um, uh, I am a co-inventor on several diagnostic imaging agents targeting carbonic anhydrase 9, um, which is one of the molecules that we'll be discussing this morning. So um, as probably everyone in the audience is aware, uh, renal tumors uh, come in a variety of different uh, histologies. Uh, and, one is and when one is faced with a uh, renal mass, um, of uh, often it's indeterminate and the histology isn't known. 
the histology could be anywhere from cancerous to benign. The most common cancerous histology being uh, clear cell renal cell carcinoma. Excuse me. Um, the most uh, common histology being clear cell renal cell carcinoma. Um, and the most common benign histology being oncocytoma. And this matters because benign renal tumors don't require treatment um, at all, uh, whereas uh, renal cell carcinomas typically do, um, some being more indolent than others, and some you could get away with surveillance and ablation, where others really need to do uh, extirpative surgery. Um, and so when we look at the prognosis of the various renal tumor histologies, we know um, uh, that it's quite variable. There are some renal tumor histologies where there's essentially perfect survival, you know, even as far out as a decade after diagnosis, whereas others, 20, 30% of patients will have, um, will have metastatic disease. And so being able to take a renal mass that's uncharacterized on the basis of imaging to know its histology than tailor treatment is, is critical. And if we look at guidelines uh, from uh, uh, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network or the American Uro uh, Urological Association, they reflect a myriad of different management options which are all predicated on the aggressiveness of, of disease. And so if we look at the management here of just the stage one or the, 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 um, the small renal mass per se, less than seven centimeters, or I'm sorry, less than four centimeters, um, the treatment options are quite varied, or rather the management options are quite varied. They range everything from partial nephrectomy to surveillance where you do nothing at all to removal of the entire kidney. And what the guidelines state is that um, you should really evaluate the underlying histology of, uh, of the patient's tumor to decide on which of these management strategies is, uh, is most appropriate. And the guidelines actually state that biopsy of small lesions may be considered to obtain or confirm a diagnosis of malignancy and to guide surveillance or ablative techniques. There are, however, limitations to renal mass biopsy. There are two systematic reviews or meta-analyses uh, in, the, in the literature which really take us through and serve as sort of our, um, our, our textbook on, um, on renal mass biopsy. And what we know is that the non-diagnostic rate of renal mass biopsy is somewhere in the range of 10 to 20 percent. Thank you so much. Um, is, is somewhere in the range of, um, of 10 to 20 percent. And so, uh, roughly one in five patients who undergo this procedure, we will not be able to yield the information which we seek. In addition to that, there's a major complication rate of approximately 1%. Simply not all tumors are biopsyable due to their anatomic location. And so while it's great that the, uh, in concept that we could characterize the underlying histology of renal tumors to, to guide um, uh, to, to guide management, in, in many patients uh, this simply is not possible. So the question becomes, can we use something like molecular imaging to help us differentiate and characterize renal tumors so we can know the underlying histology and make management decisions? So um, what I'm going to show you over the next probably about 15 minutes is that, in fact, we can. And the uh, real starting point for this is targeting what's known as carbonic anhydrase 9. Uh, so CA9 is a uh, cell surface protein that's overexpressed in cases of clear cell renal cell carcinoma. Um, under um, under uh, normoxic conditions, um, CA9 isn't expressed. However, when cells uh, face the, the, the stress of uh, being in hypoxia, uh, they'll overexpress CA9 to help um, uh, buffer the, the, the to help buffer the acidic interstitium. Um, this process is modulated by uh, HIF1 alpha. And so as we know from the work of uh, Marston Linehan and others, that renal cell carcinoma is um, uh, uh, sorry, clear cell renal cell carcinoma 
um, a, a ubiquitous event uh, in the, the pathogenesis of this tumor is loss of the then HIPAA-Lindau gene, which is responsible uh, for ubiquitating HIF1-alpha. So upon loss of VHL, you get upregulation of HIF1-alpha and then so um, uh, upregulation of CA9. So CA9 is overexpressed in roughly 95% of all cases of clear cell renal cell carcinoma. Um, it's really not expressed to any meaningful extent in other uh, renal tumor histologies. And you can see here what it looks like under the microscope um, when you stain for CA9. You can see it's beautifully expressed all over the surface of clear cell RCC, but not in this case papillary RCC. So this serves as an opportunity to target this molecule using molecular imaging to help pick out tumors that are the clear cell histology, which is the most, uh, or not the most aggressive, but the most common aggressive form of kidney cancer relative to all other histologies of indeterminate renal masses. So this has been done using an antibody known as gerontuximab. Um, through the years, gerontuximab has been labeled with any, uh, many, many different uh, radionuclides. Um, in 2013, it was labeled with I-124 uh, in, um, in, uh, in the REDEC trial. Um, and what this allowed uh, uh, to be done is PET-CT imaging to help pick out clear cell RCCs versus other renal tumor histologies. And what I show here is a picture of a uh, clear cell RCC which beautifully lights up with the radio tracer, whereas a benign oncocytoma does not. So uh, this trial was published in 2013 in the Journal of Clinical Oncology. Um, and the trial design was such that patients who had a small renal mass were imaged with con conventional multiphase imaging as well as PET-CT. Um, prior to either partial or radical nephrectomy. Um, and then the, his, the, the histology uh, then served as the um, truth standard to which the PET-CT uh, results were compared. And this allowed for, you know, calculation of all the standard diagnostic parameters. And so when we look at just contrast-enhanced Im imaging, the sensitivity for picking out clear cell, RCT, uh, uh, clear cell RCC apart from other renal tumor histologies was roughly 76%. However, once PET-CT was employed, this number went up to um, 86%. More impressively, however, the specificity of contrast-enhanced CT was only around 50%, and, um, and this number went up to 86% upon implementation of the PET-CT, um, giving a positive predictive um, value of 69% and negative predictive value of 94% for uh, PET-CT versus significantly lower values with um, contrast-enhanced CT. Um, so despite these very, very encouraging results, um, which were presented to the, um, the FDA, um, it wasn't quite approved at that point, and the FDA asked for a confirmatory trial. Unfortunately, the company that owned the compound at the time, known as Willex uh, Pharmaceuticals out of Germany, uh, or sorry, Wilex Pharmaceuticals, uh, they, um, they ran out of cash, and this uh, compound got placed on a shelf. That was until uh, recently um, when Tilex Pharma out of Australia um, in 2017, actually purchased the IP around this antibody. Um, they went ahead and have relabeled it now with zirconium 89, and they're putting it through its paces in what's known as the zircon trial, um, which um, I learned last night is like 99% accrued. Um, and so uh, this trial is going to report out soon, and we'll probably confirm the findings um, of the uh, of the REDEC trial and then will uh, be put forth to the FDA as a, a new drug application. And I imagine by this time next year, um, we will probably start seeing the first patients dosed with this imaging agent. And so it should hopefully make a big difference uh, when managing patients with an indeterminate renal mass where 
as before, we either could not characterize their histology or we relied on biopsy, which has significant limitations, and now we could do a simple molecular imaging test to discern whether or not it's clear cell. There are, though, uh, as, a, as enthusiastic as I am about um, gerontuximab PET, um, there are some significant limitations uh, to, the, to this imaging agent that are uh, worthy of um, note. And the first is that it's an antibody-based radio tracer, which has a very long circulating, uh, circulating time. Now, there, there, are some thing, there are some reasons why this could potentially be a good thing, but simply from a, uh, a radiology workflow standpoint, um, patient sort of experience standpoint, this poses, uh, poses an issue because you have to actually um, inject the patient with the radio tracer, wait several days, and bring him back for imaging, which is very different from what we currently do when we do, say, an FDG PET scan where we inject a patient and put them on the scanner about an hour later. There's a high cost um, associated with just PET technology um, in general. And yes, here in the United States, we have great access to it, but in many parts of the world, they simply do not have uh, access to PET or can't afford to use it. Um, there's also, um, there are issues also with the um, availability of a distribution network, which is required to manufacture and radio label and distribute um, antibody-based uh, pharmaceuticals. Um, and um, once approved, this agent will be on patent for, you know, another 10 years or so. So this is going to be a very expensive technology to be able to use for our patients. And probably the most significant issue is the fact that it only tells you clear cell RCC versus all other uh, tumor histologies. And yes, while clear cell RCC is the most common of the aggressive forms of kidney cancer, um, knowing RCC versus all other histologies when all other histologies includes both benign and some um, indolent but also some aggressive forms of kidney cancer may not always be um, the most helpful. So um, the question then that my group asked is, can we use molecular imaging to differentiate among renal tumor histologies, but can we address some of the issues that exist with using antibody-based uh, gerontuximab PET-CT? So, um, so we have um, explored this question through the use of not a PET imaging test, but, uh, but a SPECT imaging test. And so we, um, we focused on asking ourselves, what is different about th these two tumors? Clear cell RCC being the most common um, form of kidney cancer and oncocytoma being the most common benign uh, renal mass. And what it comes down to, the difference between those renal tumors, is the presence of mitochondria. So if we look at the oncocytoma under um, electron microscopy, um, we see images like this where, this, uh, where because of mutations in, the, uh, in, in genes responsible for mitochondrial respiration, we see that they're absolutely jam-packed full of mitochondria. And that's actually why under the microscope these tumors um, look so different on H&E staining. Um, the oncocytomas are very eosinophilic or oncocytic, and that's because of the presence of all these uh, cellular organelles, whereas clear cell RCC is clear under the microscope because it basically just contains um, uh, uh, glycogen vacuoles, vacuoles. So in the electron micrograph, our, a clear cell RCC looks like this, completely devoid of this uh, organelle. So we asked the question, can we use a mitochondrial imaging agent to be able to distinguish between these two? And it turns out that there are quite a number of actual, uh, there are actually quite a number of mitochondrial imaging agents um, that are available, uh, both for clinical use and for investigation um, only, that we could uh, potentially use for this application. We, went, we were, though, trying to solve some of those limitations of gerontuximab PET, which included cost and availability. So the choice for us was obvious to use a radio tracer known as Sestamibi, which um, has been clinically available now for um, probably 30 years, if not more, um, it, it, and could be used with SPECT imaging, which is more ubiquitous and lower cost than PET. 
So this is what Cestamibi looks like. It's a lipophilic cation. Um, it finds its way um, uh, into cells by um, passive diffusion. And then once within the cells, it uh, goes into the, the, uh, the mitochondria, where then it becomes charge-trapped due to the, um, the, membrane, the difference in membrane potential uh, within the, the mitochondria. So any cell that has a large number of mitochondria um, should take up Cestamibi. Now, interestingly, Cestamibi's uh, mechanism of elimination from the cell is by way of the multidrug resistance pumps, with the so-called MDRs. And, oops, and at the time, when we were first postulating using uh, Cestamibi for this application, what we excitedly learned is that renal cell carcinoma, one of the reasons why we don't use cytotoxic chemotherapy for this tumor is because they, it has large numbers of multidrug resistance um, uh, 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 pumps. So the very mechanism that Cestamibi is eliminated by the cells is actually upregulated in the tumor that we hoped would not take up the radio tracer. So actually the, 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 the mechanism was, was really making a lot of sense to us, at least in, in theory, which it did pan out. Um, so what does Cestamibi used for clinically? Um, at least most commonly, and that's probably for parathyroid imaging. So parathyroid adenomas contain oxophilic cells. These, these oxophilic cells, just like oncocytomas, are jam-packed with mitochondria, and our colleagues in endocrine surgery use this test to help uh, localize parathyroid um, uh, adenomas. Um, it also has an indication uh, for imaging uh, breast tumors, and it's also very commonly used for myocardial uh, nuclear stress uh, stress testing of, of, of the heart. So we looked in the literature to see if, you know, anyone had ever thought of this concept before, and it turns out there was one case report where someone had administered Cestamibi uh, to image, successfully image an oncocytoma. This was done in the 90s, though, with uh, planar SPECT imaging. So we, we thought that, you know, we were probably perhaps onto something, especially given the mechanism, but we really had to test this going forward. Um, using uh, modern molecular imaging tools. So we did this initial study in 2015 where we imaged six, um, six patients, three with oncocytomas and three with renal uh, cell carcinomas, and then looked to see whether or not this um, uh, molecular imaging agent could be taken up by the tumors. Um, these are the results from the first six patients that we imaged here. You could see the, the Cestamibi radio tracer is... Um, it's hard to point when you're parallel to the screen like this. Um, the Cestamibi radio tracer is nicely, nicely taken up in the renal tumors, as well as a normal renal parenchyma, and this is in sharp contrast to what we see with renal cell carcinomas, where you see um, no uptake of the radio tracer and probably elimination of the radio tracer by the MDR mechanism um, that I had talked about um, earlier. Um, and so it, we, uh, we felt that we were onto something here with being able to differentiate between the renal tumor types. We then went on to do a, um, a more robust um, uh, uh, diagnostic trial where we took 50 patients uh, who were scheduled to undergo either partial radical nephrectomy. We imaged them with a Cestamibi spec CT prior to surgery, and then just like in the REDEC trial, we had the histology as the truth standard. Um, and what we found is a uh, sensitivity of 87.5% um, of, uh, uh, for being able to pick out oncocytomas and hybrid oncocytic chromophobe tumors, which are basically a cousin of chromophobe, I'm sorry, a cousin of oncocytomas, uh, very, very closely related molecularly, um, but under the microscope maybe have some features that make them look like a, an indolent form of kidney cancer. Um, and on the flip side, for looking at RCCs plus angiomyolipomas, um, we only had two false positive tumors. So pretty exciting result for an imaging test that, you know, is widely available, 
very, very cheap, it's generic, and, and so forth, to be able to overcome some of those limitations of using uh, PET-CT imaging for this application. So since, we pub since the time of publishing our first study, um, this work has been um, confirmed by a number of other groups. Um, just in the interest of time, I won't go through those individual studies like I have here on this slide, and I'll skip ahead to sort of a summary that was recently published in European Neurology, uh, summarizing all the confirmatory work um, that, that's been done. And what we see is, um, you know, uh, sensitivities, um, they, 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 they range um, quite uh, widely um, in the literature. Um, anywhere from two-thirds to 90% of tumors, uh, oncocytic tumors could be picked up using the radio tracer, um, but the, the specificity of the imaging test uh, is, 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 is exceptionally high. And what we know is that the negative predictive value of the imaging test for um, ruling out uh, a benign renal mass is um, consistently north of 90% in, in all the studies to date. So, um, so I believe there's an evolving diagnostic approach that we're, that we're going to see with imaging um, uh, renal tumors. Um, if you want, this could be achieved today using a cheap imaging agent like Sestamibi. Um, alternatively, we will have the gerontuximab imaging agent likely in the next um, year to two years. And with those imaging agents in hand, you could modify currently how you're taking care of patients where the current paradigm in most urology practices, small renal mass equates to surgery. Um, some of us are attempting to use biopsy with, with all those limitations where we're trying to select patients for surveillance um, versus, um, versus, uh, versus ablation versus, um, versus intervention. But I think what we're going to see is to be able to do something more like this, what I show on the slide, where you could really tailor the approach um, management of a small renal tumor to the histology that the patient has using molecular imaging to help you differentiate uh, between the different histologies. And this is just the framework that I use in my practice using Sestamibi, where, you know, if a patient is, has a very short life expectancy, it doesn't really matter what their tumor histology is. You know, less than 10 years to live, we could watch a clear cell RCC. If a patient, you know, is very, very young, even if it's a benign renal mass, we're not going to watch it for, you know, 20 years and so forth. But really for your average patient, someone in the life expectancy range of 10 to 20 years where it really makes a difference to know what their histology is, I start by performing a Sestamibi spec CT. If it's a hot tumor, I then perform a renal mass biopsy to confirm that the diagnosis is indeed um, a, uh, um, a benign renal tumor. And if it, in fact, comes back as an oncocytic neoplasm, I then place those patients on surveillance. Um, if it comes back as an RCC or it's cold in the Sestamibi spec CT, then we move towards intervention, and I try to tailor the approach of ablation versus surgery for that patient based on sort of their wishes and my goals uh, for the patient with respect to renal preservation. So in conclusion, the T1 renal mass or the indeterminate renal mass is a diverse clinical entity which includes a number of benign and malignant tumor histologies. Patients presenting with one of these tumors should ideally be managed with a risk-adapted approach. Renal mass biopsy could aid with this purpose. However, there are significant limitations to this imaging, uh, sorry, to this diagnostic procedure. Molecular imaging offers the promise of a non-invasive means of helping us determine these histologies. And currently, we have um, one, one available imaging test and another on the way to help us achieve this, and that is Sestamibi for picking out oncocytomas and uh, oncocytic benign renal tumors, and gerontuximab, zirconium-89 labeled gerontuximab for helping to pick out clear cell um, RCC. So with that, I, again, I'd like to say thank you. Thank you to the American Neurological Association for allowing us to give this course. Uh, thank you to Mark for organizing it. Um, I don't know, Mark, do we have time for questions now, or do we wait till the end? Yeah, maybe since we started a little bit late, we'll hold the questions to the end. If 
that's okay and we'll keep moving. And then any update on the Okay. Mm, yeah, me is would that be okay? And then do I load those up? So these would be the, the pre uh, presentation test questions that I spoke about earlier. If we could have you uh, log on your app and then answer these. And then we'll continue. All right, wonderful, we're getting there again. So we'll switch gears a little bit and get started on bladder cancer, uh, financial disclosures and conflicts of interest here. And then in terms of what we're gonna talk about in this brief presentation, we'll talk a little bit about the radio tracers itself used in bladder cancer, some assessment of the original or the primary tumor, as well as lymph node and bone metastases. We'll take a little bit of time to discuss what are the responses to neoadjuvant chemotherapy and immunotherapy and how we can uh, assess those, and lastly, we'll, we'll wrap up looking at the imaging guidelines. So which radio tracer do we use and why in terms of bladder cancer? You know, an FDG is widely available. It, uh, it has a high sensitivity for uh, osteolytic lesions, but it often will have some false uh, negatives in terming osteoblastic lesions. And it pools in the bladder, making it very difficult to uh, assess any primary tumor of the actual bladder itself. Uh, alternatively, choline and acetate are radio tracers that you can consider using, but one of the limitations is its short half-life, which requires an on-site cyclotron, and of note, uh, acetate negatively impacts uh, its, its performance in patients who have had prior BCG. So looking at bone imaging, uh, typically the, the two most common radio tracers are technetium uh, 99 and sodium fluoride. Uh, technetium 99 is widely available. It's cheap, but the spatial resolution is fairly poor. Sodium fluoride, on the other hand, uh, detects uh, both osteoblastic and osteolytic lesions and um, uh, has much better spatial resolution. And we'll get to these a little bit farther on in the presentation. So to start off, when we look at primary tumor staging, you can see here on the image on the left, this is the actual pooling of FDG that we're talking about. It really obscures the entire bladder and it's difficult to assess the tumor itself. The image on the right is a contrasted CAT scan and you can see the large tumor on the left lateral wall. It is clearly seen highlighting the limited utility in, in, in FDG radio tracer PET in primary uh, tumor staging. There has been a number of techniques investigated in order to increase the performance characteristics of primary tumor staging to use FTG PET for the bladder itself, and you can see some of them here. After patients have their TURBT, uh, they're, they're reassessed for residual disease, and, and patients who get an FTG PET, you can have them uh, drink a fair amount of water, a half a liter, and then void. Uh, you can give them forced diuresis, either through oral or IV Lasix, again, to try to flush out that uh, radio tracer in the bladder, or you can actually insert a catheter, retrograde fill, and then empty their bladder to get a better view of uh, the, the tumor that may be residual. And here's some, some demonstrations on when that occurs. This is a, a uh, bladder tumor 
uh, the standard FDG PET, and you can't see really any tumor uh, in the bladder itself, but in patients who get a fair amount of water to drink, 60 milligrams of Lasix uh, a little bit of time, they'll excrete all that radio tracer, and lo and behold, you can see that residual bladder mass. And again, even in patients who have neoadjuvant chemotherapy, the same theory applies. This is the patient, again, after chemotherapy to assess residual bladder tumor. Can't see much on the FDG pet of the bladder, but after the protocol of hydration, Lasix, and urination, you can make out uh, the residual tumor uh, that may ultimately change our management. So this is an interesting prospective study to actually assess this. And uh, Yan and colleagues looked at 79 uh, patients with bladder cancer who got the standard FDG PET, and they got a PET with a delayed diuretic to enhance that uh, assessment of the bladder itself. Uh, this was all done within 30 <coughs> days of their original TBR, TURBT, and then after their PET, within two weeks, they got a repeat TURBT to see what the residual disease was. Was that actually benign uh, inflammatory process or was that malignancy? And what they found in doing this is they could assess the standard uptake value of the PET to allow for a risk stratification. Not only the uptake mean, but also the maximum and the bladder wall thickness allowed for a risk stratification scheme that they could counsel patients on. And those with high risk, clearly you need repeat resection. Lower risk patients may be able to avoid repeat TUR. So this is kind of a busy slide, but just highlights that all the studies that have used PET uh, CT for primary tumor staging, you can see a wide use of FDG and uh, choline as well as acetate, different reference standards in terms of pathology. All of this leads to a wide sensitivity, specificity, and predictive value when using FTG or using PET radio tracers for primary bladder staging. So just to switch gears for one second, even though MRI is not a molecular imaging tool, uh, it has been used widely for primary bladder cancer staging given the new VIRAD scoring system. And the VIRAD scoring system is similar to that of PIRADS where scores one and two are essentially low risk for muscle invasive T2 disease. Score three is equivocal, and score five or four or five are at higher risk for uh, T2 staging. And this uh, uh, imaging modality has been widely uh, validated across the entire uh, world uh, with good performance characteristics in terms of uh, local bladder cancer staging. So that leads us to our, our, our next imaging uh, topic of that of lymph node and bone. We want to assess both uh, regional disease and metastatic disease in the setting of bladder cancer. And conventional CT, which is endorsed by uh, guidelines, sometimes has you know sensitivity specificities uh, quite low and accuracy somewhere around 50% to determine whether a lymph node is actually positive or not. Uh, so this may be an area where uh, PET imaging can enhance uh, our performance characteristics. There's been a number of uh, meta-analyses that have compared the sensitivity and specificity of CT, MRI, and then PET CT, namely FDG PET, in determining lymph node staging uh, in bladder cancer. Some of the heterogeneity of the actual studies included in meta-analyses drive these differences and that there's different cutoffs used for what's an actually a suspicious lymph node uh, in lymph nodes that are avid where they actually biopsied or resected to confirm pathology. But generally speaking here, you can see similar sensitivity and specificity when you compare CT, MR, and PET in terms of lymph node staging for bladder cancer. 
Again, busy slide, but you can see all the studies that have been done in terms of lymph node staging. And there's a wide scope of imaging modalities in radio tracers. The populations are actually quite small, somewhere between five and maybe upper 90s in patients. Different reference standards, and again, this leads to a wide uh, uh, scope in sensitivity, specificity, and predictive value when using FDG-PET for lymph node staging. So this brings up the question, is there an added benefit to lymph node assessment using PET imaging rather than CT alone? And this was a nicely done prospective study of 100 patients that were high-risk muscle-invasive bladder cancer who were all fit for cystectomy. These patients received CT as well as a CT PET with FDG. And then the authors looked at, well, did the FDG PET actually change our management? And you can see here, it did. It showed metastatic disease in 47% of patients that were not seen on contrast imaging alone. This altered treatment in over a quarter percent of patients. Cystectomy was aborted or canceled in 16. The extent of neoadjuvant chemotherapy was made longer in 12 patients but this did come at the risk of some delayed treatment or false positives, but that was in only about three of the 103 patients. So hinting there may be some utility in getting an FDG PET CT either in combination or in, in, uh, in place of a contrasted CT alone. Perhaps the largest retrospective study in the literature just came out the other year by a German group, and they looked at 711 patients who also had the same uh, a kind of study design in that all patients received a contrasted CT plus a FDG PET CT. And you can see here the clinical stage changed in a quarter percent of patients. As you can imagine, the vast majority of those were upstaged given the performance characteristics of PET to determine lymph nodes. And then on the lower right here, you can see that overall 16% of patients' treatment was changed based on the PET. Local treatment changed in 20. Uh, neoadjuvant chemo changed in 13, and then uh, palliative care treatment changed in 8%. Um, begs the question, should we be doing PET with MRI since MRI has a uh, higher uh, performance characteristics for soft tissue? A couple of small studies um, have done, uh, looked at this. Essentially, the, the lymph node yield in terms of the cystectomy drove the sensitivity and take-home message. This appears similar to uh, uh, CT and, and FDG PET. So do a handful of institutional studies change management? No, but there's this wonderful group in Canada who's doing a large uh, multi-center prospective trial on this topic. Uh, each year I email them for an update in preparation for this course, and they sent me back that they've completed recruitment uh, and, um, and they'll have two-year follow-up. So a couple more years, and they'll be able to tell us hopefully a little bit more uh, certainty whether FDG is, is in indicated. So other radio tracers, just briefly, uh, choline and acetate are radio tracers we can use to stage bladder cancer. However, they don't pool uh, in the urinary system. They're rather physiologic in the, in the pancreas, spleen, and liver. So they don't have, uh, they don't obscure the primary tumor like FDG-PET. Uh, a large meta-analysis looked at the performance characteristics of acetate and choline PET. I mean, you can see their uh, sensitivity somewhere around 66%, specificity high around 89%, but the take-home message is this is similar to the performance characteristics of contrasted CT, MRI, and FDG PET. 
So really the next question, can we use this imaging modality to assess response to neoadjuvant chemotherapy? Small study of 19 patients uh, did this. They used FDG-PET, which I correctly identified responders in 95% of the patients in this study. Uh, they could differentiate complete responders from incomplete in about 68%, and you can see sensitivity and specificity listed uh, here, which is uh, somewhat comparable to contrasted CT. Is there ways that we can check for a response to neoadjuvant chemotherapy before the actual chemotherapy is uh, completed? This was a prospective study that adopted uh, FDG PET after the first two cycles of chemotherapy. So patients would get an upfront PET, get two cycles of chemotherapy, and then subsequent PET, they assess the response based on a 50% standard uptake value, and this would determine whether the patients were T2 or no longer T2. And ultimately, the take-home message is that those patients that responded would go on and get completion chemotherapy with the, the hopes of a complete response. Those patients that don't respond uh, could go straight to cystectomy, so potentially impacts our management. Looking at bone, uh, this is uh, really brief that, that, that uh, technetium-99 is widespread adopted and used. You can see on the left two images uh, that the uh, performance characteristics are somewhat limited, and, and you can see the entire axial skeleton has uptake. The sodium fluoride on the left can pick up a, a specific bone lesion, but in 2015, CMS decided that uh, sodium fluoride uh, PET is neither reasonable nor needed in terms of staging bladder cancer and has fell out of favor. So lastly, how do we determine whether uh, uh, patients are responding to immunotherapy? Can PET be used for that? Really our approaches that we're trying to do this is as imperfect as they, as they stand because we'd like to identify patients uh, who don't derive any clinical benefit from immunotherapy and they could avoid uh, being exposed to the adverse events if we could determine whether they are responding or not. Uh, and really it's important to identify responders as early as possible, again, so we can avoid the toxicity or allow a different line of treatment. And in that vein, this was an interesting, uh, well-done nature uh, study in 2018 that looked at zirconium linked to tezolizumab. And the take-home message is really that the standard uptake value corresponds fairly nicely with disease burden in addition to disease response. So it looks like coming down the pipeline in the future, we could start to assess for immunotherapy response depending on uh, what evolving radio tracers we come up with. So just uh, to wrap up in terms of guidelines, uh, both the NCCN and the American College of Radiology makes it very clear that there is no role for PET imaging in non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. In terms of muscle invasive bladder cancer, their guidelines are a little bit uh, fuzzy. In the pretreatment space, they say it may be useful in patients who have what we suspect is greater than T2 disease, and it may change management in those with greater than T3 disease. Uh, as we've shown, it may improve sensitivity for nodal and metastatic disease, and there appears to be increasing data in this space. In those patients who have already been treated, uh, there may be some utility if they didn't already get imaged uh, pretreatment and it may be used to resolve some equivocal findings on other tests. So to wrap up, there is increasing evidence that supports the use of FTG PET in staging a muscle invasive bladder cancer. There is no role for it in non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, and really the guidelines endorse select use, so we have to use this judiciously, and then the future of radio tracers may uh, determine whether they can help assess neoadjuvant chemotherapy response in response to immunotherapy. So with that, I'll hold here and Pass off to Dr. Rose. I think you can scroll down. Yeah. 
All right, great. Thank you so much. Um, and I'm going to be talking about the use of PET in the diagnosis, diagnosis and management of testis cancer today, um, which is a new addition, I think, to this course. Um, and hasn't changed all that much in the last few decades, although there's some really novel things going on in recent clinical trials and upcoming stuff that we'll talk about. But I'm going to go through staging, then um, evaluation of post-chemotherapy residual disease, which is really the meat of use of PET in testis cancer, and then talking about prediction of early treatment response, uh, a little bit similar to some of the stuff we just saw in bladder cancer, and then a comment on some novel tracers and, and future directions. So to start out, the bottom line here is that both seminoma and non-seminoma, pretty um, on all guidelines, the use of PET-CT for initial staging is not recommended, and is particularly recommended against. And you know, there's actually a number of different sort of small studies looking at the sensitivity and specificity of PET um, in in the different types of testis cancer. And this is one of the larger studies. And I'll just make the comment that all of the studies pretty much that have been done have been using FTG as the tracer. Um, so this study looked, it's a um, big German study, looked at 72 patients. And all of these patients were undergoing primary RPLND for either a stage one or stage two non-seminomous germ cell tumor. And so they all had PET prior to surgery. And so the gold standard here was you know, pathologic uh, viable tumor. And they initially had set out to accrue 169 patients and kind of while this study was going on, we really started to do more and more active surveillance for the stage one patients. And so less and less patients were having primary surgery and they didn't meet their um, accrual goal. And out of the 72 patients that did end up accruing, 19 of them, so 26%, had pathologic nodal involvement. And so they set out, you know, we know that at baseline CT misses sort of 20 to 30% of, um, of lymph node involvement. Um, and also, um, you know, 20 to 30% of patients are actually downstaged at the time of surgery. And so they set out with a baseline negative predictive value of CT of about uh, 70% and set out to increase it with PET, with PET to 90%. So that's how they did their stats. And their primary endpoint of negative predictive value ended up being 78%. Um, so it was a negative study overall. Um, but if you actually break it down and look at sort of the sensitivity, specificity, accuracy, it's actually kind of similar to what we just heard in bladder, is that it does slightly increase some of these metrics, but really slightly. And when you take into account the um, difficulty in interpretation and the access and the cost, et cetera, et cetera, it's really not a benefit and, and probably not cost effective to do PET CTs for staging. Um, but you can see here, you know, they increase negative predictive value from 67 to 70 percent, 78 percent. Um, with CT and PET. Um, you know, there, we use PET more often in the post-chemotherapy setting for seminoma, and so one might ask, has there been a similar sort of large prospective study in seminoma staging? And the answer is really no. The largest study um, that was done was actually, you know, done over 100 patients, but actually looked at patients throughout the course of their disease. And if you look at just the seminoma patients, which was only about 40% of the study, and then those are an initial staging, it only ended up being 16 patients in the big study. So I didn't even include it kind of in the slides because we don't have sort of quite the same um, data, but, but from most of the single arm studies, the, the retrospective things, seminoma looks similarly, like there's a very small perhaps improvement in um, initial staging, but um, very similar to contrast enhanced CT, which remains the standard of care 
I will say in light of uh, the fact that my institution doesn't have very much IV contrast right now, if you're staging sort of new testis cancer patients and you don't have IV contrast, it would not be unreasonable to get a PET CT to help stage, although it's clearly not standard of care and I don't know about insurance reimbursement. But for, for in general, you know, contrast-enhanced CT remains standard for staging of both seminoma and non-seminoma patients. Now, once we get into post-chemotherapy residual disease assessment, it's a, it's a very different conversation because um, we do use PET-CT sometimes in this setting. So we know from multiple prior studies that size of mass in seminoma is very predictive of whether or not uh, there's viable disease left. So um, this, these are just three studies, but there's actually many more than this, that shows that this cut point, this magical cut point of three centimeters ends up being really important. So these are seminoma patients um, with post-chemotherapy who have received primary chemotherapy and have residual masses less than three centimeters. The rate of having viable seminoma in one of those is less than 10% in almost all the studies, and you can see these three here, are it's actually zero. Um, greater than three centimeters, so it's variably reported, but it's, uh, you know, tends to be between 10 and 50%, um, probably somewhere in between, and uh, CT really just ends up doing a poor job telling us which of those patients have viable seminoma or not. And so based on these studies, if you have a patient who's received chemotherapy and has a mass less than three centimeters, a PET-CT is really not indicated because the chance of um, any residual seminoma is so low that the likelihood of false positive ends up being much higher, especially um, with what we know about seminoma. And so we use FDG avidity in this setting, so in the tumors that are greater than three centimeters as our best predictor of post-chemotherapy residual seminoma right now. I will say um, as more and more data comes out on sort of mRNAs and things like that, um, it, it, I'm hopeful that this will no longer be our best predictor of post-chemotherapy residual seminoma that we use in clinical practice in the future because the desmoplastic and inflammatory reactions we see with seminomas actually leads to false positive FDG avidity very commonly and it's very hard to interpret these scans. As many people in the room know better than I, since I'm a medical oncologist, these are really demanding hard surgeries. The complication rates we see in some of the post-chemotherapy seminoma patients are quite high, um, and um, in some of the bigger studies, around 20% of sort of societies, retrograde ejaculation, hematoma, et cetera, et cetera. So these can be challenging long surgeries. Um, that And the, so the actual incidence of patients that need surgery for seminoma after chemotherapy is and should be quite low. Um, and this should really only be considered at these high volume centers with surgeons that have a whole lot of experience because they end up being really difficult surgeries and the decision on whether to take them to surgery or not based on a PET scan um, can be really challenging. And so the reason we do this really comes out of this relatively small study called SEMPET in which 51 patients with advanced seminoma um, had post-chemotherapy FDG PET scans. And you can see here um, that the PET-CT um, performed pretty well. And so the, the, out of these patients, you know, the FDG PET had 100% specificity, 80% sensitivity with 100% positive predictive value. I mean, those are pretty good numbers. Um, whereas you can see conventional CT, even if you draw that size criteria, 
um, had only a positive predictive value of 37%. And so really size of mass does not predict viable seminoma. And so based on this, um, this is really where a lot of the guidelines came from to get a PET scan in patients with uh, residual masses greater than three centimeters after chemotherapy. Now also out of the SEMPET study, it looked like waiting longer after chemotherapy was better. And so they sort of prospectively got this cutoff of waiting at least six weeks after you stop chemotherapy. Um, and then there's been larger studies that actually validated this time frame. This is another really important point about using PET in the post-chemotherapy seminoma study. So this study um, you know, looked back at 127 patients who had PET scans from 19 different centers in Europe. All of these studies are from Europe. They're much better at studying um, testis cancer than we are. Um, and out of them, you know, only 26% of patients have positive PET scans. Um, but really, the, you know, both positive predictive value and negative predictive value went up very well um, a lot in the after six-week time frame. And I just want to point out, as a medical oncologist, that this six-week number is actually not after the last um, cycle starts, but after the last dose of chemotherapy. So it's, it actually ends up being like day 63 after we count it as cycle four, day one. Um, so it, you know, so it's, it's a good few months there to wait after, after people finish um, chemotherapy to consider getting a PET scan. But you can see, you know, even in this um, cohort of patients, the negative predictive value of PET after six weeks and lesions greater than three centimeters ended up being in the 90s, so it looked pretty good. And so after sort of all these papers came out, you know, this really went into the guidelines as patients post-chemotherapy with salmonoma should undergo a PET scan if positive, you know, consider surgery if negative surveillance. And then this paper came out a couple years ago, which actually put some of this into question. Um, it's a pretty large for the, the conversation study, um, looking at um, patients that had a positive PET scan post-chemotherapy. So these, all the patients included had a positive PET scan. And then uh, they looked at um, you know, what happened to these patients. How often did they relapse? How often did they have viable seminoma, et cetera, et cetera. And um, interestingly, uh, you know, the, it's the, the end, so it ended up that 23% of these patients ended up having either like seminoma in the specimen or ended up relapsing. And that's a pretty low number. So out of all the patients that had a positive PET for seminomas greater than three centimeters, only 23%. So positive predictive value of 23% um, for, uh, for having viable seminoma. And all the things that we typically look at, time from chemo, SUV max, size of residual mass, you know, whether the radiologist or nuclear medicine doctor thought it was uh, equivocal or not equivocal, um, didn't seem to matter in this study. And so, and the other important thing to note is out of all the patients that relapsed, the ones that had surgery or didn't, or the ones that had, um, you know, persistent PET positivity, because a lot of these patients actually didn't go to primary surgery, all but one were actually cured with salvage chemotherapy. Um, and so if you actually look at the numbers, out of the 90 patients um, that ended up being included, 51 of them, so more than half of them, ended up going on for repeat imaging instead of initial resection. And out of those 51, you know, you had 11 end up relapsing um, and two going after a, a second positive scan to surgery and having seminoma in the specimen. And so those are still not, I mean, that's still a minority of patients. So even those who had persistent PET positivity on their scans, on serial scans, a minority of patients actually had viable seminoma or relapse. And so even if you have persistent PET positivity, it doesn't mean 
that you necessarily have viable seminoma. So it gets very complicated in the setting of these being really challenging surgeries. And so it's a little bit up in the air who we should take to surgery and when, um, and really if all patients with PET positive tumors greater than three centimeters actually need surgery or not. And so if you look at the current version of NCCN guidelines for patients with Salmonoma after chemotherapy and a residual mass greater than three centimeters, you know, it says surveillance or PET. Um, so it's really a, a choice and a discussion. Um, and then, you know, if you have, a, if you choose to do the PET scan and, um, and it's sort of indeterminate, you know, consider a repeat. They recommend six to eight weeks. I typically will do it a little bit longer. And then if positive, you know, consider resection or biopsy. You know, in that study I just showed you, a few patients got biopsied. None of them had positive biopsies um, that, um, that were helpful. And, you know, two of the patients that had negative biopsies ended up having relapse. So, you know, the utility of biopsy in this situation is also questioned. The other thing to add is that, you know, the Indiana group has published on their experience in patients who had viable seminoma at the time of RPLND. Now, this is 36 patients who had their surgery and then had viable seminoma, um, and the outcomes were actually pretty poor. You know, in patients that at the time of surgery had viable disease, had 54% cancer-specific survival, and 25% remained cancer-free. Um, and, you know, their conclusions were that viable seminoma is particularly resistant to local control with many RP relapses. So one may ask, you know, if, if all the patients that have viable disease that you take out end up relapsing, why are we doing the surgery? That being said, you know, this study included a lot of patients that actually had a, this was a second RPLND that had viable seminoma in it, and it also included patients that were having surgery after salvage chemo, so not after primary chemotherapy. And so this is a really, really, really high-risk group. Um, you know, one might argue this group may not even see the kind of representative patients that many of us see. Um, so I think it's a little bit biased towards poor outcomes because of those things, but it is an interesting thing to note. And then the same group also published their experience with high-dose or salvage chemotherapy, and um, their outcomes look pretty good with the two-year progression-free survival in 90% per, 90 and 79 patients with relapsed or refractory seminoma. And so if you compare sort of the outcomes with salvage chemotherapy or high-dose chemotherapy compared to that with surgery, um, which is clearly not a direct comparison, one might wonder if we should be treating most of these patients with salvage chemo. Um, so in summary, um, you know, given the low rate of residual tumor in, in lesions greater than three centimeters, we really should not be using FDG PET in this setting. Um, I think you can consider it in the tumors that are greater than three centimeters, especially if, um, you know, they look like they would be surgical candidates if these were residual disease. Um, you know, if the, F, if the PET scan is negative, that's also very reassuring. You need typical surveillance in that. If it's positive or equivocal, I would consider repeating it um, because a few patients end up clearing their PET positivity or their FDG avidity, um, and when they clear it, then those patients are very unlikely to relapse. And then, you know, think hard about exactly who we should be doing post-chemotherapy surgery, and then consider salvage chemo at unequivocal progression or, or if the morbidity of surgery is really high. In the non-seminoma, so this is much less well studied, and that's just because it is much more difficult to sort of tell um, 
the difference between FDG pet avidity in viable germ cell tumor versus in teratoma. And so you can see, you know, this is one example of a study and probably the best one that FDG pet is really only marginally better than conventional CT in assessment of residual disease for non-seminoma. So for example, this is 85 patients with a um, positive predictive value of 91 and 62% and negative predictive value of 62% compared with conventional imaging that's 84 and 58. So a little bit better, but um, very, very similar. Um, and for, for this reason, we use sort of conventional CT. Um, you know, we, there's one study that looks at this kinetic rate of FDG avidity, um, but it's really not validated. And so because we can't tell the difference between residual teratoma versus scar, necrosis, et cetera, versus viable tumor. Um, we really don't use FDG in the non-seminoma setting. And so most of the guidelines actually say, quote, it has no role in the management of non-seminomas post-chemotherapy. Now to move on to some of the clinical trial work that's been done, you know, the question is, okay, so if PET has such a good negative predictive value in seminoma, you know, can we use it earlier in treatment to actually de-escalate chemotherapy? So this is the semi-PET, um, semi-TEP trial that was presented at GU ASCO last year, no, two years ago. Um, and um, essentially they took a, a cohort of patients with good risk seminoma, gave them standard EP times two, and then did a PET halfway through chemotherapy to look at response. If the PET was positive, they continued on standard of care chemotherapy with two more cycles of EP. If it was negative, they gave them carboplatin times one. So essentially a de-escalation with a chemotherapy that is less toxic um, for patients with a negative PET scan halfway through chemo, given the good negative predictive value of PET. And these are the curves from the two arms. Um, the patients that got EP times four are green. The ones that got de-escalated, um, which was actually the majority of patients, got EP times two and one dose of carboplatin. And you can see the um, three-year progression-free survival is um, actually exactly the same in the two arms. You know, one might argue, well, if the better risk patients, you know, the ones that got de-escalated had gotten EP times four, maybe their curve would have been a little higher. But, I mean, the outcomes are very good at 90%, so it's very hard to say that. Um, but it looks pretty safe. And we know that, you know, patients with seminoma that relapse end up being very curable with salvage chemotherapy. So I think this is um, really interesting. And it's not yet, um, I think, considered standard of care. You know, there has not been validation. It's a pretty small study, but it's, um, you know, it, it, it bodes hope for de-escalation of chemotherapy. And then this is a similar study that actually treats all patients with carboplatin um, and similarly looks at the PET scan um, after two cycles of treatment. Actually, I think this is after one cycle of treatment. They give carbo and then they determine how many future cycles of carboplatin they get um, based on whether the PET is positive or negative. Those with positive PETs get um, three cycles, those with negative pegs get two cycles, et cetera, et cetera. Um, carboplatin is not a standard um, for treatment of these patients in general, so I think this has been less um, intriguing or adopted in the community in general, but is also sort of a really interesting way. You know, this is how we very commonly treat lymphoma, which is also very pet-avid and chemo-responsive. And then just a couple comments on the new tracers. Um, you know, we have, we don't have quite the amount, it's hard enough to do uh, testicular cancer studies with FDG PET, um, so there's not big, huge um, studies on the new tracers, at least not yet. Um, there's a couple case reports looking at giving like 177 lutetium PSMA therapy for a patient that um, 
that had uptake on a gallium 68 PSMA scan. Um, there was a mixed response, so it's not all that positive a, a case report, um, but is an interesting concept. Um, and then um, similarly, we had a patient with testicular seminoma uh, that had a case report that, that got picked up on a, a 18 choline PET um, done for prostate cancer. So, um, you know, it is possible to pick up some of these cancers with other tracers, and I think it will be interesting prospectively to see what tracers are studied in testis cancer. Um, and then uh, this is a flucyclovine PET um, that um, is being investigated as a way to sort of differentiate necrosis from teratoma, which would be potentially very helpful in those post-chemotherapy non-seminoma patients. There's only 10 patients that were investigated and had a pretty poor sensitivity and specificity, so I'm not sure if it's moving forward, um, but that would be another sort of like the renal talk, looking at oncocytoma versus, you know, picking up these teratomas would be actually very helpful clinically. So in conclusion, there's currently no role for PET in non-seminomas. FDG avidity has a high negative predictive value for post-chemotherapy residual seminoma, so very helpful in that standpoint if it's negative. Management of positive, greater than three centimeter seminomas after chemo is nuanced, um, and RPLND and surveillance remain options. And then PET may be used to predict early treatment response and de-escalate chemo, but this remains investigational at this time. I learned a lot in that talk. <laughs> it's not always good to see sometimes how your own imaging modalities don't work as well as you think they do, huh? Now hopefully this works. How about that? It opened right up. Okay, well, we made it to the last talk. I apologize you have to listen to me before uh, going and get coffee, but hopefully uh, we'll keep you awake for the next 30 minutes. So I'm gonna talk about PSMA PET, uh, and hopefully by the end of this, we'll have a couple of questions on all of our talks, and, and then we'll get to a coffee break. So these are my disclosures. So prostate-specific membrane antigen is a transmembrane protein overexpressed on prostate cancer cells. I think everyone now is familiar with this term because it's been used quite a lot. Uh, everyone should also know that it's not specific to prostate cancer. Other cancers, like renal cell carcinoma, also express PSMA. And that's obviously, as I'll talk about, expressed in a lot of other benign conditions. But in general, in patients who have prostate cancer, it's surprisingly specific and sensitive for the detection of metastatic disease. So this is the case I always like to show, right? Patients with low PSAs where we would never be able to localize disease. Now you can get a PSMA PET and localize osseous and soft tissue metastases. And I think when I first gave this talk, the, the first time we gave this was in person, I made some comment about I can't wait for the time when we can get rid of bone scans and CTs and get down to one imaging modality to stage patients. And we are now in that era, right? So now you can actually get a single PET imaging study with PSMA and you have complete staging of patients with prostate cancer, which is quite nice. There are a lot of radiotracers out there, and this obviously causes a lot of confusion. Uh, so you can see many of these are FDA approved, some are in clinical trials. What's important to know is they all share this urea motif, right? And they bind to PSMA in the same way. So I think of all of these agents as a class, 
Okay, so they function very similarly. Although, as I'll show, there's some differences in biodistribution. Uh, PSMA 617, this is the agent in phase three, or in phase three trials. In the vision trial, got FDA approved in March of this year, although Novartis can't deliver it to us right now, so we can't treat patients, but that's a separate issue. PSMA 11, this, we got this approved from UCSF and UCLA back in 2020, and actually there's now uh, F second NDAs from Telux Pharmaceuticals and Novartis also got PSMA 11 approved as well. And then DCFPYL, this is Pufluflolistat or Polarify. This got approved in uh, December of last year. And this is the one that people are going to be most familiar with. It's going to be most widely available. It's fluorinated and so easily distributable, although PSMA 11 is becoming uh, available around the country as gallium generators get installed to make this. PSMA 1007, this is in phase three clinical trials. This is RHPSMA 7 on the top right here, and this is also in phase three trials that actually have completed enrollment was presented at ASCO GU this year, and I'm sure there'll be follow-up data on this agent at uh, ASCO uh, in a couple weeks. The only other compound out there is CTT1057. This has a different binding moiety, so it's actually a phosphoramidate uh, moiety which binds to PSMA in a different way. It's an inhibitor rather than sort of an agonist, um, and it's also now entering phase three trials in the U.S. as well. So you can see there's a lot of these agents. There's two FDA approved and more coming down the pike. I think about it in this way. So PSMA 11 on the left here, DCFPYL on the middle right. These I think of as nearly identical. Biodistributions are the same. If you look at the trial data, I'll show you uh, in essence the same sensitivity and specificity in very similar populations. PSMA 1007 has this hepatobiliary excretion. You see the liver is very avid. Not a lot of activity in the bladder. So the idea here is it might be better for looking for local recurrence, right? For seeing you know, disease that's in adjacent to the bladder. CTT has has a different biodistribution, more blood pool, but also works well for localizing disease. Okay, so looking back, we used to use fluciclovine. Hopefully, we're getting past the era of using fluciclovine in prostate cancer. This was a paper by Jeremy Calais out of UCLA, and it showed that you had, in essence, nearly a double or more than doubling of detection sensitivity on a patient level. The percent of patients you localize disease was twice as high with PSMA 11 compared to fluciclovine. This is in patients after radical prostatectomy with a PSA less than 2. So what we're trying to do here is see if salvage radiotherapy wouldn't be a good choice or if there's disease outside of the consensus tumor volume. Note, fluciclovine pretty much only saw disease in the prostate bed, right? But PSMA sees, in essence, lots of metastatic disease and pelvic nodes. This is the disease that's going to change management in these patients, right? And so this is why PSMA 11 is, is markedly preferred. The other thing is interreader variability. It's much easier to read PSMA. Now, I'm going to show in a couple slides all these false negatives and false positives. And it, it is difficult, obviously, with any imaging study to interpret. But PSMA has a much higher interreader agreement than fluciclovine. Point two is, is actually really terrible. Uh, 0.67, this is consistent with most imaging studies. One is perfect agreement, zero is, is perfect disagreement. Okay, another comment about uh, agents. People always want to say one is better than the other. So this is a paper uh, that I stopped presenting because I don't like the paper, but I think it highlights an important issue. So this was a patient who got DCFPYL and PSMA 11. This paper concluded in 15 patients that DCFPYL was better than PSMA 11. Okay. Now, on the left here, they gave 9.7 millicuries of DCFPYL and imaged it in 120 minutes. 
In the PSMA 11, they gave 1.7 millicuries an image at 60 minutes. Any radio tracer would beat itself when given this different activities and with different uptake times. So FDG would beat itself if you did this with it, right? And this is well below any administered activity you should ever give with PSMA. And so my point here is that scanner and acquisition protocols and activity use and uptake is way more important than the radio tracer you use. Uh, so it's this idea that we have to worry about this tracer versus that tracer, I'd like to nip that in the bud. And so in my mind, the best PSMA pet agent is the one the patient can get. Okay? So we want to use this. It's improving the staging of these patients. Don't worry about the differences between these radiopharmaceuticals. Okay, now I'll go to the false positives. I think it's important, particularly when you're seeing patients, you'll get a lot of these reports. And, and I will say that not all nuclear medicine physicians are comfortable yet with interpretation of PSMA PET. And so people will be calling things that generally I would consider a false positive. So rib lesions is the number one issue, particularly patients at initial staging. You'll find these solitary rib metastases, and those are not going to be real. If you have a patient initial staging has all they have is a single rib lesion, that's going to be benign. Okay, so just keep that in mind. Do not hold back potentially curative radical prostatectomy or definitive therapy because you see a rib lesion. Presacral ganglia are also overcalled sometimes. These are anterior posteriorly oriented just in front of the sacrum. These are also not real disease. Once you get familiar with this, you'll never call it, but I, you know, I used to call this before it was described, you know, five years ago when I was reading PSMA PETS, and now I obviously know better. Dorsal root ganglia, which we skipped over there, uh, hemangiomas, Paget's disease here, classic appearance on CT. There is a characteristic appearance in Paget's, which is confusing. It's a cotton wool appearance. It looks like a sclerotic rounded lesion, which for all intents and purposes looks just like a MET. The second patient we ever imaged on with PSMA back in 2015 had cotton wool Paget's disease, and no one had actually described Paget's disease having an uptake with PSMA PET, so we were scratching our heads for quite a while trying to figure out what that was. Other tumors, and particularly lung cancer, has uptake on PSMA PET. Uh, a lot of lung, and they have really good uptake on PSMA PET. It doesn't look low level, so, you know, SUVs in the 10s. Uh, you can see here on, on the PSMA PET image, it looks very avid. But this one's obviously fairly straightforward. It's uh, spiculated. It doesn't look like a cannonball met like you'd expect from prostate cancer. When In this setting, you really want to keep in mind the patient history, right? So if you have a patient initial staging, they're not going to have lung mess, right? So if you're seeing something at that stage, you should obviously be thinking of lung cancer. If you have a patient with CRPC end stage, there are post-dose attacks or abiraterone, the chance of having lung metastasis in that setting is going to be much higher. But just remember, lung cancer in particular is going to be avid on PSMA PET, but many other cancers, RCC, hepatocellular carcinoma, thyroid cancer, et cetera. We just saw a case report of, you know, Gem seminoma, I can't remember what your case report was of, but you know, everyone's trying this agent in many different uh, cancers. Now, I don't like this term false positive. I want to change that term to true negatives. If we train ourselves to interpret these images well, we won't call these positives, and so they will actually just be not reported because they'll be normal uptake and we won't report them. So just keep that in mind. I, we think about this as a, a negative aspect of the site. It's just training for us nuclear medicine physicians uh, to do a better job of interpretation. Now, the other things to think about in terms of interpretive pitfalls, so here's a case. Uh, you can see this is a T2-weighted image on a PET MRI. These are the ureters filled with urine, right, so they're T2 bright. Uh, this lesion here was actually originally called ureteral activity, 
right? Because it looks very close to the ureter, but you can actually see there's a little lymph node here right posterior to the ureter. And so when you do the fusion, you actually see the activities just posterior to the ureter. So ureteral activity can both mimic cancer and mask cancer, right? So you have to be careful about ureteral activity. And this is one of the places I spend a lot of time when I'm interpreting images, just making sure what I know is ureter versus cancer. Sometimes on the, the anterior projection image, the ureters are linear and you know, superior inferiorly oriented, whereas nodes are, are punctate uh, is one way to also tell. But you have to be careful about that. Another thing is this bladder activity. So we were hearing about FDG PET and bladder cancer, how the, FD, and the FDG will actually <coughs> mask the primary tumor, right? Same thing can happen, in essence, with PSMA PET. You can see here there's uptake in the bladder. Now, obviously, the CT is acquired at a different time than the PET, so you don't see the full bladder on the CT scan, but it fills up with this radioactivity during imaging. And you can see just this little nodular uptake right at the base of the bladder that correlates with these little enhancing nodules. When you're looking Looking at the bladder, you, you want to look for the wall being not linear and flat. And if you're seeing that, that should really raise your suspicion for there being local recurrence. Sometimes these aren't as clinically relevant because you're going to be irradiating this area anyway. Sometimes they can be very clinically relevant. Uh, so you can also do delayed imaging. At our site, we don't give LASIKs anymore or do delayed imaging, but many sites around the world will do that. Okay, now I'm going to talk about clinical indications, and we're going to go through sort of the appropriate use criteria, which we spent a lot of time making for PSMA PET, and I find this document helpful to follow through because obviously I wrote it, therefore I think it's really awesome. But uh, no, I think it's helpful to think about it in the way this document is. So the initial staging indications. So we listed five different indications for initial staging. And in this setting, there's different areas. So remember, when you think about appropriate use, this is actually important when you order high-end imaging studies in the future, which starts January of next year, you will have to use a decision support tool software to actually get reimbursed by Medicare for these things. So these uh, AUCs are actually going to be pretty important in order for you to actually get your imaging studies done. We obviously, for scenario three and four, these are the indications that are approved. So you have to be a score seven or above to be covered by Medicare. So anything seven above is called indicated. Anything below is, in essence, not indicated. But these would be patients with unfavorable, intermediate, high-risk, or very high-risk prostate cancer uh, or having oligometastatic disease on CT. Uh, this is, in essence, matches NCCN guidelines. The only weirdness here is scenario five, this newly diagnosed prostate cancer with widespread METs on conventional imaging. That's a little unusual because there's this weird thing now where people are actually getting CTs and bone scans still, and then you're trying to decide if you want to get a PSMA PET once you've already had a CT and bone scan. In a year, presumably no one will get CT and bone scans anymore, and so this isn't a relevant indication, but there's sort of an overlap time where you might have patients who have frank METs, and obviously if you have frank METs, there's going to be no clinical benefit of getting a PSMA PET. And then in patients with very low, lower, favorable intermediate risk, it's not appropriate. All the clinical data to date is in patients uh, who have high risk or intermediate risk prostate cancer. And then looking for patients in who don't yet have a pathologic diagnosis, obviously, it's not indicated. These are the papers really that support the initial staging indication. So our paper out of UCSF and UCLA using gallium PSMA 11, and then the OSPREY trial with a DCF PYL. Very similar studies, surprisingly similar patient numbers, very similar sensitivities and specificities. In essence, these agents behaved nearly identically. What's interesting is these sensitivities were lower than we actually had anticipated. Uh, when you looked in the literature back in the day, the sensitivities were you know in the 65, 70% for nodal metastases. And what we're missing are these three millimeter pelvic nodes. They're just really hard to see on imaging studies. It's not that surprising. Uh, but in essence, this is the data that supports that. 
There's also the pro-PSMA study. This is a randomized trial out of Australia where they took men uh, with initial staging and randomized them to get either CT bone scan or PSMA PET up front and then crossed over to see how CT and bone scan compared to each other. The take-home point here is that this bottom bullet point, 31% of patients had a change in management with PSMA PET compared to 23%. But the weird thing about this study is they reported this 85% sensitivity for PSMA PET, which at first was a head-scratcher because, you know, we were getting 40% with PSMA 11 and DCF-PYL. And then when you look a lot more closely, you realize that only 4 to 5% of patients actually had pelvic nodes confirmed at histopathology. What they're talking about is, in essence, a sensitivity for METs that you see on conventional imaging outside of the pelvis, right? Bone scans and big nodes. And obviously in that setting, you have a much higher sensitivity because you're in essence confirming it with conventional imaging. So it's sort of a weird biased uh, sensitivity. So this isn't as if it has like a better sensitivity than the other. It's just, I think of them as complementary. This is more talking about distant METs, whereas the other two trials I just showed you are talking about pelvic METs with path correlation. So the specificity is much more important on the other papers that I was talking about. I think the most important aspect of PSMA PET is actually on radiation therapy plan. I think our radiation oncologists really love PSMA PET because they now have things to zap. Uh, so this is an impact of uh, high-risk patients at an initial staging. We took 45 patients, looked at where the PSMA PET AVID disease was, and found that, in essence, 53% of the patients we imaged at initial staging who had high-risk prostate cancer had a change to the radiation therapy plans based on the results of the PSMA PET. That's actually pr pretty impressive how impactful this is on radiation therapy planning. Now, in terms of initial staging, the other thing that's interesting is that there are patients uh, who have, in essence, PSMA-negative disease, right? It's not that common, but it does exist. So if you look at uh, our trial, the PSMA-11 paper that I said in, in JAMA Oncology, and look at the sensitivity based on the uptake in the primary tumor, not surprisingly, as your uptake in the primary tumor goes up, the sensitivity for disease goes up, right? So if your uptake is less than or equal to blood pool, the sensitivity is only 25%, and if it's greater than parods, it goes up to 47%, right? So the sensitivity is directly related to how much, how avid the primary tumor is. That's not too surprising. So in this patient here, very low <coughs> uptake. You know, you look on the MIP, and it doesn't really look that different than blood pool. You can see here this patient clearly has a nodal metastasis greater than one centimeter in short axis, but just has very low avidity, maybe you know, just a hint, a whiff of PSMA avidity. But you can see how that the expression of PSMA in these tumors can impact the sensitivity of the study. Okay, so just keep that in mind. And just, you know, you just look down at the prostate, see how avid that primary tumor is, and that will help you understand the uh, sensitivity for nodal metastasis in that individual patient. Now, as I said, there's PSMA negative tumors. So here's a patient, you know, this is a high B value uh, DWI image. ADC is dark, restricting on diffusion. Here's a CT scan, not that useful. PSMA PET, you actually see uptake maybe on the other side of the prostate, but really it's frankly negative, so no evidence of activity in the prostate. Now I want to make a point about PSMA negative tumors because I think there's a bit of confusion with this. So first of all, this people think of PSMA negative tumors as bad actors. Okay? If you have a PSMA negative tumor, that's bad. So, and that comes from data like this. So this is patients who were being screened for PSMA radioligand therapy, and they looked at what happened to patients who had PSMA negative tumors in those patient populations, and the overall survival in those patients was 2.5 months. So a PSMA negative tumor in the end stage CRPC setting after dose ataxel is terrible. Right? That, in essence, there's no effective therapy. You should go on hospice, really, if you have a PSMA-negative tumor in that setting. Okay? 
But the opposite is true in initial staging, right? So this is the primary trial, which is actually a really cool trial about Australia by Louise Emmett. I think she won like paper of the year from European Neurology last year, I'm not really sure. And the, you know, so the x-axis here is SUV max, and the y-axis is pyrad. So the lower your pyrad score, the lower your SUV max, right? So the lower uptake, less likely to have aggressive tumors. And then I've just put in this slide here, the primary score. They're actually running primary two, where they're now gonna take patients and do PSMA PETs and, and pre-biopsies, sort of like MR-guided biopsies, but doing PSMA PET-guided biopsies and see if PSMA PET outperforms MRI for the localization of primary tumors. And I think they've already enrolled like 40 patients in that trial, so that'll be very exciting as well. But my point here is that at initial staging, low expression is actually a good thing, and I'll show another slide in a minute uh, later on in the biochemical recurrence setting talking about that. So biochemical recurrence indications, this is obviously the slam dunk setting of PSMA PET, right? If you have biochemical recurrence with a persistent or rising PSA after radical prostatectomy or after definitive radiotherapy, this is clearly the best imaging modality to stage those patients. Uh, we did not approve PSA rise after focal therapy of the primary tumor for a couple of reasons. One, the idea here was that this would actually sort of go back into the primary indication setting. So if you have a Gleason 4 plus 5 tumor, you should be staged as if you're being initially staged. And secondly, it's unclear what PSA is for recurrence, defines biochemical recurrence after focal therapy as well. So we struggled with the focus. This was sort of a debatable topic, although I saw in the AUA agenda there was some discussion about how how RT and RP are no longer the only approved uh, ways to have definitive therapy for prostate cancer, which I found surprising in a urologic association meeting. But uh, anyways, apparently times change as well, not just in imaging. So the biochemical recurrence studies are, again, uh, UCSF, UCLA, PSMA11, and Condor study with DCF-PYL. Uh, similar studies as well. We imaged a heck of a lot more patients, but had uh, not as many patients who met our composite endpoint uh, because our composite endpoint required either imaging correlates or follow-up, et cetera. Uh, the company-sponsored trial, probably because it was paid for, uh, had a much better follow-up, so they had 208 patients total with 132 uh, that met the standard of truth. And the detection rates you can see here based on PSA are very similar. The correct localization rates or positive predictive values are very similar. Again, just like the initial staging, these two imaging agents function nearly identically and should be thought of as interchangeable. Obviously, PSMA PET has a huge impact on the management of patients, right? And so this is just showing that in patients who, in essence, have a negative PSMA PET, patients had a trend towards surveillance. If they had nodal disease, they had a trend towards radiation therapy or targeted therapy. If they had metastatic disease, there was a trend towards systemic therapy. This is all fairly obvious. I do have some issue with this uh, surveillance data, and I'll show you some slides on that in a couple slides about why hopefully we don't surveil patients with PSMA-negative disease. Now, here again showing a patient after radical prostate PSA rise from 0.5 to 0.9. Now, this case I like. This is one of our earliest cases. Uh, this patient then got metastasis-directed therapy to those two nodes and has been actually biochemically free since then, which is pretty impressive. Why I think it's important is you look at these nodes, and they are hot. Right? You don't need a nuclear medicine physician to interpret this image for you. Anyone can look at this and say, okay, that's prostate cancer. In that setting, I'm much more confident I'm seeing the entire extent of disease, so metastasis-directed therapy is likely to be more effective. The patients who have low-level expression, low uptake, 
you know, we're probably missing smaller nodes elsewhere. Maybe there's more disease that we're getting, not understanding. But with these population of patients who have really avid disease, we're probably seeing the entire extent of their disease, so metastasis-directed therapy is going to be more effective. That has not been proven in any respect, but just anecdotally, uh, I, I see that. And then I hopefully, some of the trials that are recruiting now, we can retrospectively analyze that to see if that's true. STOMP, I think you're all familiar with this. This is a choline-based metastasis-directed tr uh, trial showing that MDT outperforms surveillance in terms of ADT-free survival. There's also Empire-1, very similar study. This is in a patient population post-radical prostatectomy, PSA less than 2, fluciclovine versus conventional imaging, showing improved biochemical-free survival when using fluciclovine for planning the radiation therapy. Now, this hasn't yet been done with PSMA, but it's enrolling. So this is, actually, this is done enrolling. Jeremy is running a trial here of PSMA PET randomized, or patients randomized to get PSMA PET versus conventional imaging, and this will hopefully read out like Empire One, showing that patients will have improved biochemical-free survival when you plan your radiation therapy with PSMA PET. I think fairly straightforward, the idea here, as your PSA goes up, your detection rate goes up. Right, so the higher your PSA is, the more likely you are to see, see disease. But I, I do, there's always this question of what should, when should I get a PSMA PET, right? What PSA should I use to trigger my PSMA PET? And I, I sort of want to say in general, don't wait for a higher PSA to get a positive PSMA PET, right? In essence, let's wait for our patient to get metastatic disease before we try to look for metastatic disease, right? And it's probably the wrong way to think about this. But a lot of people will do this and say, oh, you know, I need to get a PSA of 0.5 because I want to have a PSMA PET that's positive. And let me show you why that's probably not a good idea. So this is uh, Louise Emmett, the woman who ran primary one, also did a retrospective analysis out of St. Vincent's, Sydney. And it was really nice. So here you can see uh, these two bars in this chart are people who have a negative PSMA pet or local disease. And after they're treated with uh, a salvage radiotherapy, those patients do really well, right? And that is independent of PSA level. Okay, so you can see, independent of PSA level, the patients who have only local disease do really well. Does that make sense? So you want, if you, as a patient, you want a negative PSMA PET, right? That's what you want. If you undergo radical prostatectomy and your PSA is 0.2 and you have a negative PSMA PET, awesome. Get your salvage radiotherapy and you're going to do great. Do not wait for the patient to get pelvic nodal metastases on PSMA PET to treat them with salvage radiotherapy, okay? So I think that's a really important point, and a lot of people sort of misinterpret that. Okay, the CRPC settings, the last area I'll talk about. Uh, so in the non-metastatic CRPC, we actually approved it as being uh, indicated, and this is sort of interesting because uh, in M0 CRPC, there's actually becoming more data that you can treat that disease with oligometastatic directed RT, not totally standard of care, but we're moving towards that. And so in this M0 setting, there's potentially a clinical role for PSMA PET, but in patients who have, for example, a post-treatment rise in the metastatic setting, uh, who aren't being considered for PSMA radiolagging therapy, there's no clinical role for localizing that disease, so it's not appropriate. If you're being evaluated for lutetium-177, PSMA-617 uh, therapy, then obviously this would be very appropriate, and so that should be indicated. And then right now, for evaluation of response to therapy, this is not indicated. So really only in the MCRPC setting, if you're being considered for PSMA-RLT, or in the M0-CRPC setting would this be indicated. This is the data in patients with M0-CRPC 
we looked at 200 patients uh, who had M0 CRPC, 98% of them had positive PSMA PETs, and 40% of those had oligometastatic disease that could be targeted using RT. So there's actually a, a large percent of these patients, and actually UCSF are running a trial called Pillar where we're taking uh, M0 CRPC and randomizing them to get apalutamide versus apalutamide plus RT to see if the addition of oligometastatic directed RT will actually improve outcome in patients. Now, what about selecting patients for PSMA RLT? So here's a patient, PSMA PET, you have your parotid, has an SV max of 15, the tumor's 31, the liver's 4. This patient clearly meets criteria for PSMA RLT, and you can see that the PSMA PET, in essence, predicts the uptake on subsequent doses, right? So this is the post-cycle 1 image. This is done with a, a SPECT scanner, right? So you can have a planar image done on a SPECT scanner, and you can see the response over time. And so PSMA PET should definitely be used to select patients. One of the issues is that the therapy trial, which I'm not going to go into this too much, you use an SUV max cutoff. The vision trial, the one that led to FDA approval in the U.S., had uptake greater than liver. And so this uptake greater than liver is a really important point because physiologic uptake in the liver matters. So Pluvicto, it actually, interestingly, in the package insert, this is lutetium-177, PSMA-617. I try not to say vipivotide. Uh, but anyways, it's, it's obviously indicated for treatment of MCRPC, but it says in the package insert to select patients using locomets or a PSMA-11 imaging agent. Okay? So it actually, in locomets, I don't know how they got their brand name in there, is just PSMA-11. So in essence, the package insert for Pluvicto says you have to use PSMA-11 to select patients, and I think we don't believe that. So do you have to use PSMA-11? No. So here is a paper which compared DCF-PYL versus PSMA-11, and you can see that over here in the liver, there's in essence identical uptake in the liver with both PSMA-11 and DCF-PYL. And so the, the selection of patients here would be in essence identical with both of these two agents and given that PSMA-11 is not widely available in the United States, we really do want to allow patients to have uh, patient selection with DCF-PYL so that you know, patients can get this treatment easily around the country. Now, NCCN guidelines are in essence identical. So initial staging is in unfavorable intermediate high and very high risk patients. Biochemical recurrence, same as us, no PSA cutoff provided. And then do include actually progression for CSPC systemic therapy, including patients with castration resistant disease. So this is sort of like, sort of like the M0 CPR, CRPC, but they add in the M0 CRPC as well. Okay, so that's NCCN guidelines. I do like the fact that the phrasing in the NCCN here about conventional imaging, I like the way they put it. So the panel does not feel that conventional imaging is a necessary prerequisite to PSMA PET, and PSMA can serve as an equally effective, if not more effective, frontline imaging tool for these patients, right? So this, you will get pushback from insurance companies who want you to get a CT and bone scan prior to getting a PSMA PET. That's why this verbiage was put in the NCCN guidelines to say, hey, do not get CT and bone scan prior to getting a PSMA PET. Nonetheless, I'm sure we will still be fighting for insurance companies for another six years, but that is what it is. So in summary, one, there are now five approved MDAs for PSMA PET, right? So we have four for PSMA 11, and then we have one for DCF-PYL. PSMA PET should be used in unfavorable, intermediate, high, and very high-risk patients at initial staging, at time of biochemical recurrence after radical prostatectomy and radiation therapy, in the non-metastatic CRPC setting and to select patients for PSMA radioligand therapy. And then I think the point I've made about 12 times in this talk, PSMA-11 and DCFPYL should be considered equivalent clinically. So whatever agent you can get access for your patient is the one that you should use. So thank you very much, and I think we have now time for talk. Questions?
Wonderful. Thank you all to our panelists for uh, presenting today, and we're happy to take any questions uh, that the audience may have. Good morning. Excellent talk. Thank you. Um, for the PSMA scan, does renal function, uh, is, does it affect the scan? No. Tom, are you doing PSMA CT? Are you doing PSMA MRI? Um, so probably not relevant to most people in this audience, uh, but we at UCSF have a PET MRI, uh, which is a very cool modality that has obviously an MR and PET scanner that's integrated into itself, so you get both PET and MRI images simultaneously. Half of all of our PSMA PETs are done on our PET MRI. Um, mainly to scanner availability, because with PSMA 11, it's a gallium-labeled compound made with a generator, uh, so you can only make two doses at a time, and they have to be given, in essence, at the same time, so we put the patients on one patient on one scanner and one on the other and image them. Uh, but for, I think for initial staging patients, I find the PET MRI helpful. For early biochemical recurrence, it's helpful because the DCE MRI, the contrast enhanced MRI at the, in the prostate bed is helpful for visualizing that local recurrence and the anatomic correlate uh, to what you see on the PSMA PET. And actually, I'm finding, surprisingly, in the CRPC setting for PSMA radial ligand therapy it being very helpful because we're starting to do whole body diffusion uh, to look for PSMA negative disease, in essence, as a replacement of FTG. Sort of an interesting way to think about it. Tom, for those who don't have access to a PET MRI scanner, do you find that cross-modality fusion is, is accurate enough to allow for you to fuse it up to an MR? Yeah, I don't know about the, I like that, the fuse it up to an MR. Um, you know. I'm sorry to say that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, it, you could get an MR, a DC MR with conscience, it totally works just fine. Uh, actually works great. Uh, and you don't need even to fuse them, right? I mean, you, you're, you can, you know, cognitively fuse them, right, without actually, like, well, trying to overlap them, and it works I mean, just I was fine. blown away by that ureter case. That's more what I had in mind. Oh, yeah. That, that, I think, is, that one, I think the CT is fine. You don't need an MR for the ureteral case. The benefit of the MRI is, is for DCE looking for local recurrence, seminal vesicle involvement, uh, adjacent to the bladder, looking for little enhancing nodules. That's where, really, MRI shines. I, the ureteral case is a cute one, but you don't need the MRI for that. CT would be just fine for showing that distinction as well. Yeah. We've put a lot of effort into attempting to, you know, do it described actually, you know, fusing them, and it never, despite the best, you know, uh, the deformation technology that we have, it just never quite looks as good as those PET MRIs do. Um, I agree. My images look the best. <laughs> Well, thank you again for attending, and I think uh, there'll be some follow-up questions that come to you uh, based off of these presentations today.